Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today I have the pleasure of having a conversation with the Reverend Dr. Laura Smith. She is professor of theology at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and she's with us here at Beeson to present our 2016 William E. Conger Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching. Welcome to Beeson, Laura. Thank you very much. Now, this isn't your first visit. We've, we've enjoyed hearing you before, and we're very grateful for your bringing the Conger Lectures to us this year. Uh, I want to ask you uh, just to introduce yourself a little bit. Uh, tell us about your background, maybe how you came to be a minister of the gospel. Well, I always wanted to be a minister. When I was in first grade, I remember telling people I was going to be a minister when I grew up, and they would always laugh. Wow. And I didn't know why they would laugh. I was a little older when I found out my denomination didn't actually let women be ministers. Mm. But um, I just always felt a strong call to the, the preaching ministry. Mm-hmm. and assumed I would be doing it for all my life. It has always been a little startling to me that I'm a professor now. But yeah. uh, it, it's good to be a professor, but that wasn't the path I thought I was on. Now, what is your denominational background? I was raised in the Christian Reformed Church, and uh, my my family is very strongly Christian Reformed. My father was born on the mission field, so on his side of the family, I'm surrounded by missionaries. All mm. of his siblings became missionaries for the Christian Reformed Church. And my mother was raised in the Christian Reformed Church in Iowa. So I was very much um, enmeshed in that denomination. And it was uh, a bit difficult for me to have to leave when I finally did because I needed to pursue ordination. Now, uh, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, and we don't have all that much time, but preaching is one of them. You're here giving our lectures on preaching. Uh, tell us, what do you think about preaching? How do you teach preaching? Can you teach preaching? Well, I don't know if how you teach preaching, fortunately or unfortunately. I've never had to teach it. Yeah, for, you're for, a professor of theology. I'm a professor of theology. you're a professor of theology who preaches. But I preach a lot. <laughs> and and I, I do think that my preaching has changed over my career, and in part it's changed because I've become a professor. I'm, I'm often tempted to think about going back into the parish and becoming a pastor again because I love to preach. But then I think how much of my preaching is driven by my teaching. I think the fact that I teach, and especially that I teach undergraduates five days a week, I bring theology to undergraduates, empowers my preaching in interesting ways. And if I were back in the pastorate, uh, preparing to preach would certainly take a lot more time because now that preparation is sort of folded into the study that I'm constantly doing uh, for my other job. Now, one of the things that uh, I know is characteristic of your preaching is that you don't use notes. Well, I do have notes. You do have notes. I just notes. don't look at them. All right. <laughs> but I had a little piece of paper there yesterday. Uh, yeah, you, you were preaching on Psalm 16 in what mm-hmm. I would call a kind of expositional way. I mean, you were opening the text. Right. You were looking at this verse and that verse and drawing wonderful theological principles, lessons from the text itself. So in a way, it was textually driven, I would say, your message. I try to do that. Sometimes I do preach more uh theological, doctrinal sermons. That's a tradition I grew up with in the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, 
catechetical preaching is still practiced, where you preach through the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, when I was a young pastor, I preached through the Westminster Confession because wow. I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I didn't know that no one else in, <laughs> in the Presbyterian Church USA was preaching through the Westminster Confession. But um, it was a, a formative thing for me to do that, to discover the theology I had just promised to support, and I'd, mm-hmm. I'd taken vows to to be guided by this and and to learn it in a deeper way. So I do sometimes do that. Last summer I preached a series at, at my home church on heaven and hell uh, because there was someone in the church who was really grieving and asked me, please help me understand what this means and where my my loved one is now. And that was a much more topical thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there, I had texts, but often more than one. So I don't always do the expositional approach, but I, I certainly try never to preach just separated from the, the biblical mm-hmm. text. I do like the shape of the sermon to be driven by the biblical text. Now, you're a Reformed theologian. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, that's an interesting question because I'm a Reformed theologian who works with medieval sources primarily. And so in a way, um, I'm a pre-Reformed theologian. Um, it's one reason I sometimes call myself an Augustinian instead of a, mm-hmm. a Reformed theologian because the people that I work with are typically in the Augustinian tradition. That's why I recognize them as being like me because that's mm-hmm. where Calvin is too. Sure. Um, I did my dissertation on Bonaventure. Mm-hmm. Um who's very a very strongly Augustinian person in the 13th century. And I see a lot of connections between the way Bonaventure thinks and the way Calvin thinks. Mm-hmm. But I'm also Reformed um, in, in my ecclesiology, I mm-hmm. think, in my strong commitment to my church and my sense that I have to be guided by and submit to the confessional statements of my church, that uh, theology is done together in community, that we are wiser together than alone. And so there's this very structured system of of the session at the congregational level and the presbytery and the synod deliberating together about what our theology is and how we should think, and we pray together and we talk together. And and then when that conclusion is reached, I'm expected to submit to that. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's a good thing. Now, I'm a Baptist, but I'm a Reformed theologian. Yes, you are. At least I think I am, <laughs> although some Presbyterians say I can't be because I'm not a Presbyterian. Oh, no. Presbyterians don't have a corner on the Reformed tradition. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that. I agree 100 percent. But um, your sermon yesterday in chapel, uh, you, you it, it was a great reflection in a way on the sovereignty of God. You, you began by making the statement that no matter what you may do, your sin, your failure, that this does not harm God. Mm-hmm. That's a kind of countercultural statement to make, to make in these days. It is countercultural, but it's certainly not contrary to the Christian tradition. And certainly not to the Reformed tradition. No. That particular view has been part of a great ecumenical consensus from the second century up until the Second World War. It was something affirmed by Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and all Protestants. And in fact, it's not hit very hard in many of our confessions because it was not controversial. It was assumed. It was assumed, yes. Where did we get off track on that? Well, it can't just be because there was a lot of suffering in the 20th century. Every century has had suffering, and, and many have had much more horrific suffering than at least we 
privileged North Americans have ever experienced. And yet people held firm to the idea that God is beyond pain and not vulnerable. So I think it has more to do with a certain kind of American individualism, because it has been especially a dominant view in the United States, I think. This suffering God theology has really taken off here. And I think it might have something to do with a kind of Oprah effect that we think of ourselves in terms of our pain, that that's a very important part of our identity. Some of the the newer movements advocating a suffering God like open theism are clearly driven by an Arminian theology where it's important for God to be responsive to me. My decisions have to change. God have to matter to God. So I, I see all of those things as fairly modern concerns. And and I'm not terribly impressed by any of them. I, I really don't think that this movement toward the suffering God is going to last very long, though. I, I think the great service open theism has done us is it's shown the logical consequences of that view. If you're going to say God is vulnerable and suffering, you also have to say he changes. You also have to say he's in time. Uh, you also have to say he's not self-sufficient. And then there are consequences to that. There are consequences like he cannot tell us the future because it's not there yet. He doesn't know it. He just has highly accurate predictive powers. I think when most American Christian evangelicals, anyway, take a look at those consequences, they say, I can't go there. And and any theological idea in history has always taken decades to unfold and then be evaluated. It's not something that happens in a few weeks. It's something that happens over a long time. I think this idea, we're evaluating it, and I hear fewer and fewer people who are impressed by the idea of God's suffering. Now, you mentioned you're a Reformed theologian, uh, not only because of your view of the reality of God, mm-hmm. let's put it that way, but also ecclesiology. And you are a member and an active leader, actually, in a fairly new denomination called Mm -hmm. the Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians, commonly called ECO. Yes. What is that? Well, we're a a new denomination formed in 2012. Uh, We are strongly committed to our Presbyterian confessional heritage. We are strongly committed to the equality of men and women in every office. That particular combination is hard to find. Mm. Uh, One of the reasons that we exist, I think, is that um, most of us who are in ECO at this point have come out of the Presbyterian Church USA. We were finding the Presbyterian Church USA too liberal, but the places that we could go to uh, were often not very welcoming to women. And so we were people for whom that was not an option. And that's not just women clergy, but many you know, all of the clergy in ECO are enthusiastic supporters of the equal partnership of men and women. We were also typically people who were a little bit more uh, concerned with social justice issues and didn't want to lose that piece of being Presbyterian. And some of the denominations we could have gone to would have been less open to that. So we felt as though the combination of things that were important to us were not being represented in any of the denominations available. And so we also thought... Um, that it was time for a post-denominational attempt Mm. at a denomination. So we don't have a big office building in the middle of the country with uh, a mission board and, you know, an office for everything that churches do. We're much leaner than that. And we have a fairly slim staff. 
we're trying to be more self-governed. We, we're sort of harking back to the way the Presbyterian Church was structured in the colonial era. Hmm. How, how did Presbyterians get together then, and how did they uh, build community then? It was not the same kind of bureaucratic approach to community. It was much more peer-to-peer. Now, how, how long we can sustain that, we'll see. Uh, organizations do tend to generate bureaucracy, and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I can't promise that this experiment in a new form of denomination, more of an order and less of a, an organization. I can't promise that's all going to work, but I think it's an experiment worth trying. And you're kind of on the cusp of this new movement, the move, a movement of the spirit, I would say. I hope so. To, to bring mm-hmm. uh, life and vitality to this part of God's people. Yes. So I wish you well with that. Thank you. Now, your interests are so wide and varied. You've recently been on a sabbatical leave, I think, at Oxford University, and you told me you were working in the Bodleian Library, that great, great library at Oxford, on C.S. Lewis. Yes, it was very exciting. Tell us about it. Well, I had a whole year sabbatical, and so I spent the fall in Oxford. I spent the spring at the Center for Christian Thought at Biola University, and they gave me a fellowship which made the whole year possible. So I'm deeply indebted to Biola, and and that was a fantastic place to be, too. Mm -hmm. So the balance between those two spaces was was quite lovely. While I was in Oxford, I I lived at the Kilns at at Lewis's house. I've been there, yeah. Yes. And you know, I, I don't have a real mystical sense that the spirit of Lewis then infuses <laughs> me or something. Some people talk that way. But when you stay at the Kilns, you do meet lots of Lewis people, and that's yeah. that's lovely to get kind of acquainted. And I, I spent a lot of time going through the Lewis papers in the Bodleian, which was a real privilege. What's your focus on Lewis? I'm I'm working on a project on magnanimity, which is the name he gives to the quality of the chest in the mm-hmm. abolition of man. Mm-hmm. And that I've always liked that little book, and that quality of the chest seems to me to be uh, very important in that book, but yet a bit under-described. Mm. And I think it's because there's a whole history of conversation about magnanimity in the ancient and medieval world that Lewis is assuming. So I'm working on Lewis, but also on his sources, mm-hmm. uh, which is a way to bring in my own medieval background into my my work on Lewis. Great. Well, we look forward to seeing uh, Thank you. the results of your research <laughs> on uh, C.S. Well, Lewis. Well, you're going to hear some of that in these lectures, actually. Good. You've written a number of things. I want to ask you about one of your books, which has a fascinating title, Loves Me, Loves Me Not, The Ethics of Unrequited Love. What is that about, and why did you write it? When I was in grad school, I was in an interdisciplinary department. So We didn't share anything academically. We were studying all sorts of different things. And when we got together, we mostly talked about our personal lives. And and I have a very clear memory of being at Boston University with all these people, most of them younger than I was since I was a second career PhD student, uh, talking about all the things that were painful in their life. And I looked around the table and realized everyone around the table, and there were probably a dozen people there, was either in love with someone who didn't love them back or being pursued by someone they weren't interested in. And there were a couple people who had both those things happening. And because I was already a pastor by the time I went to grad school and a bit older, they thought I should have wisdom about this. And I I found I didn't. I didn't know anything to say to them that was distinctively Christian or moral. Uh, the, The extent of teaching on this that I'd received as a young person was don't have sex before marriage 
which is true and good advice, but not helpful when the the love you're dealing with is one way. Mm. Um, so it seemed to me that this was a nearly universal human experience mm. and that the church had never spoken to it very clearly. What's been the response to this book? Uh, it's an interesting response. I'll speak at a conference and and usually some shy young person will sneak up and say, I read your book. <laughs> and then I usually say, I'm so sorry, <laughs> because, because people read the book in times of sorrow, you know, yeah. uh, either because they're in a horrible situation of being stalked or pursued and they don't know how to get out of it or how to say no in a Christian way, or because they're desperately in love with someone and they, they don't know how to recover. Uh, so I, I think it's, uh, passed hand to hand in a lot of situations, uh, and my college students have been very helpful to me in writing it, actually. I, I interviewed a lot of them. You could see this would be a particular focus for college-age students, but is it not only for college-age students? It is students? not only for college-age students. Actually, an, another group of people who have often been very receptive to this book are people like me, older, never-married people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've, I've never been married, and what what happens when you're a single person is that every single romantic involvement you've ever had has ended as a one-way mm-hmm. uh, romance, uh, one way or the other. And the conventional wisdom in Christian circles, which is move on quickly, that was a waste of your time, find find a mutual love that will lead to marriage because that's all that matters, that means every romantic encounter I've ever had is meaningless. Mm-hmm. And I don't accept that. Mm. And neither do most single adults of my age. We want to say, actually... Uh, love is meaningful, and you learn things from it, and it adds to your character. It does things for you. It leads you closer to God, mm-hmm. even when it's not returned, maybe even especially when it's not returned. Your book is called Loves Me, Loves Me Not, The Ethics of Unrequited Love. Well, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been the Reverend Dr. Laura Smith. She is a wonderful professor of theology, also a very fine preacher. She's here at Beeson to give our William E. Conger Jr. lectures on biblical preaching. And you can order these if you would like to listen to them from our media center. They're available for you to listen to. You'll be blessed to hear Dr. Laura Smith. Thank you so much for this conversation and for your visit to Beeson. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.